0: Let me draw your attention now to the Word of the Lord as we find it in Wonder of Wonders, Miracle of Miracles, chapter 2. We made it, folks. Can you believe it? Month upon glorious month we've been in Hebrews chapter 1, and now here we are in Hebrews chapter 2. And so I encourage you to turn your Bibles there to God's Word. We'll be reading from the first four verses. As the author of the book of Hebrews moves from glorious theology to now the application, the implications of that glorious theology as we will see him do multiple times through the remainder of this letter. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that what we're about to hear is the word of Almighty God, so let us give attention to it as we should. Therefore, we must pay... salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord Jesus and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Please join me in a moment of prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have graciously told us in the Scriptures that the way we are to keep our way pure is by guarding it according to your word. And So we ask now that you would empower us to seek you with our whole heart. Let us not wander or drift from your commandments. Instead, mercifully strengthen us to store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We pray that you would teach us your statutes, for you are our blessed Lord and Savior, and we are your beloved people. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, growing up in Bakersfield, as a family, one of our favorite pastimes was to go out to a lake, and I almost wasn't going to tell you what lake, because you're going to look at me a little differently after I tell you this, but we regularly went to Buena Vista Lake, and I tell myself it was better back then, but who knows if it really was. But we loved to take... This boat that had been given to my dad out on the lake. My dad always wanted a boat. He was a pastor, so he could never afford one. And finally, someone gave him this old, dilapidated 1956 fiberglass boat. Had like a little engine on it that was 50 horsepower. Um, and we restored it. And we took it out to the lake, and we would get uh, dr- driven around the lake on, on, a, on a tube or on a, a kneeboard. It wasn't powerful enough to pull us uh, up on skis. So we weren't able to participate in that. But one of the things that we loved to do after doing the water sports is we'd pull the boat up on the beach. It was a sandy beach there. I think it's probably still a sandy beach. And then we would attach a rope to the boat and then put a stake on the shore so that the boat would be tethered and and it wouldn't drift away because that's what often would happen. And our dad would tell us as we were playing, knowing how much we enjoyed the boat, knowing how much blood, sweat, and tears we had put into it and how much we enjoyed our time together on it, he'd say, boys, you need to pay careful attention as you're playing to the boat because what would happen is there was a current in the lake and other boats would pass by creating a wake that would have waves that would come and splash against the boat and it would start to rock and want to just drift away into the, the open water which would be dangerous for anybody else who was driving a boat around. They could potentially crash into it and sink the boat. And our beloved boat would then be gone. And so dad was telling us, I know you love this, and I love you, so make sure you pay attention. Don't let it drift. Keep it where it needs to be so that we can continue to enjoy this. He did that because he loved us, and he knew that we loved him and we loved the boat. And I share that story not because it's cute or a little walk down memory lane, but I think it's a a fitting comparison uh, in certain ways to what the author of the book of Hebrews is now doing in chapter 2. We know that the situation that these Hebrew Christians are in, to whom the author is writing is they are, are those who were raised in the Jewish tradition. They lived all their lives under the Mosaic law. But now they'd heard the gospel, received it with great joy, were being persecuted by non-believing uh, Jews around them, those who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were persecuted by the Roman government because Christianity was not a recognized religion by the empire. And they experienced that suffering and persecution and the temptation to bail really well initially. But as time went on, they started to to be tempted to drift, to drift away from it. It'd be so much easier. We could make all of our troubles go away if we just paid lip service or returned back to life under the Mosaic Law. If we returned back to Judaism. And so much like my dad warned us boys, don't let the boat drift. The author of the book of Hebrews is saying, don't drift away from the truth. Don't drift away from the glories of the son that you have now heard and received and professed belief in. You must pay much closer attention to that which you have heard because you're in danger of letting go of it and apostatizing and returning back to the old ways out of which you have been saved. They pointed you forward to Christ and now he's come. And so you need to cling to him. And what we're going to see in verses one through four here of Hebrews chapter two is that the unit of thought, there's one unit of thought here in these four verses. It's, it's one argument. He's warning them. He's exhorting them to pay attention and not to drift away, not to neglect this salvation that has been given to them. They need to pay attention. And so he's warning them. But what I want to do this morning with this passage is divide it up into two sections. And the reason for that is because the argument that the author of the book of Hebrews employs to warn them is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Because this lesser thing is true, How much more true is this greater thing? And what is the lesser side of the argument? It's the old covenant, the Mosaic law. He says, because um, every infraction, transgression, violation of God's law was punished under the old covenant, how much more true will that be under the new covenant now that the full and final revelation has come, now that the promised one has come? And so what I want to do, while the argument is one, is I want to split these verses up. And we'll touch a little bit on the New Covenant this morning, but we'll primarily focus on the Old Covenant. And then next week, we'll look at verses 3 and 4 and touch again on the the lesser argument, but focus primarily on the New Covenant and the greater argument. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 2 primarily this morning, and then verses 3 through 4 uh, the following Sunday, and as we look at this this warning passage, the first of many warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews, I want us to notice two points um, in the author's argument. Two main points here: one, he gives them one command; he gives them one command in light of everything that's followed that he said from chapter one. And second of all, I want us to look at two motivations that he gives them to obey the command. We'll look at the one command in verse 1. And then we'll look at the two motivations to obey the command in the last part of verse 1 and verse 2. And as we look at this, what I want us to realize is that God is sovereignly inspiring the pen of whoever wrote this. Our best guess is the Apostle Paul, but we don't know for certain. Whoever wrote this, to warn this church. Now, why do you warn somebody? Because you love them. He loves This audience. And so he warns them. And what you need to understand is God is warning his people. Don't stray. You need to pay attention. Don't be slothful. Don't neglect this great salvation that you've been given. And that is exactly what the Spirit wants us to hear this morning. What's driving this warning is not that the Lord would push you away, but rather draw you to himself in love as you, yes, shake and tremble. As we shake and tremble before this warning this morning. So let's look then at first, very quickly, the one command in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So he starts this application, this exhortation, this warning with that word therefore. And as any Bible scholar will tell you, and as most of you I'm sure probably know, when you see that word therefore, especially in the New Testament epistles, the question you should ask yourself is, what is that therefore therefore? What does what, what the, this, this word serve? What's its purpose? And the therefore is to remind you of everything that we heard in chapter 1 the glories of the Son, the glories of His gospel. The the point is, because this is true of God, this is now true of our life in covenant relationship with Him. It's a logical conclusion that we should obey this command. So what did we hear about the Son in chapter 1? Well, we heard that He's the only begotten of the Father. He's co-equal with the Father. He's co-eternal with the Father. He's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. He's the Father's best and final word. The Father spoke in the Old Covenant through all sorts of prophets and priests and kings. And now He has spoken His best and final word in His Son who is the prophet, priest, and king of whom all the prophet, priests, and kings in the Old Covenant were but a type and shadow. And he is the creator and sustainer and sovereign over all things. They exist because of him. They continue to exist because of him. And they're moving to their appointed end because of him. He is also the one um, who made a, a purification for our sins. We were guilty for, before God for our sin. And so we deserved his just wrath. And yet this one who is son perfect in glory and honor, humbled himself, took on flesh for us and for our salvation to fulfill the law perfectly for us so that we can be counted as righteous in him and to pay the penalty in full for our sins. And we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and united to him. And he's also been given a name that is high above any name. He's greater than the angels and he's been shown in his person and work to be greater ...than all of the angels in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so, if the, the old covenant was given through angels, and we respected that and listened to it... ...because God mediated that covenant through angels, now the Son is here and he's greater than the angels... ...so we better listen up. This is, the, this is what the therefore is built upon. Everything that was said in chapter 1 now leads to this logical conclusion this command. And what is the command? Well, we see it first when he says, we must. Notice he includes himself, the author does. We must. Here's the command. We must what? Pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard about the glories of the son, his excellencies, his supremacy, his preeminence the gospel, the good news. We must pay much closer attention to it and not just hear it and say, oh yeah, I know that theology, that's great, check, I can move on in my Christian life. No, to meditate on these realities, to ruminate on them, to have communion with our triune God in light of these incredible realities. We must pay much Closer attention, much more closer attention than we ever did to the old covenant or to the law. Because the full and final revelation has come in the Son. The final and best word has been spoken. And I love the language here of uh, pay much closer attention. Uh, Greek scholars, uh, I read many of them, said that that Greek verb there can be translated for pay attention it's i uh, I'm sorry, it can't be translated. It's accurately translated, but it's a, uh, it's a present active infinitive. That's the type of verb it is. So it's something you need to presently be doing, hence the command, but it's not like you do it just for a little while and then you stop. It's infinitive in that you, you go on doing it the rest of your life, paying much closer attention to the excellency of the Son and the gospel that has been proclaimed in him for he is the gospel. And so it's not something you do just for a little while. It's something we're commanded to do the rest of our lives. So what's the command? Pay much closer attention to the glories of the Son and the gospel, the salvation in him, the revelation in him, the whole kit and caboodle. Now, he doesn't just give the command The author of the book of Hebrews is a good pastor. He's a good leader. And so it would have been enough for him to just give them the command on the authority of God, but then he gives them motivations. Why should you obey this command? Well, you already have all the reasons why in the first chapter, but now he's going to give you some more, two more in particular, because he wants them to obey it. And he knows that their tendency is going to be to drift, is to not even obey this command. To neglect it, right? Isn't that our problem, folks? What, what's the first sin that Adam and, and Adam and Eve ever commit? They drift from God's word. The serpent comes in Galatia, uh, Genesis 3 and says, Has God really said? And we know from Eve's response that she was already starting to get things wrong, to neglect God's word, to not pay close enough attention to it. And so they fell prey to the fall and the curse that we're now all under as human beings. It has run amok. You wouldn't be having any of the problems that you have this morning if Adam and Eve hadn't drifted from the word of God and we do the same thing. So he gives us motivation for paying close attention and not drifting. So let's look at the two motivations then that were given at the tail end of verse 1 and verse 2. I'll start at the beginning of verse 1 so you don't get lost. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Now, I love the the brilliance of the choice of words here uh, by the author of the book of Hebrews. We miss it in the English, but I studied enough commentaries and and Greek scholars that this word can be translated three different ways. So depending on uh, which commentary and which scholar you read, they may use different um, word pictures that the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to evoke here. So we're going to look at all three of them. Um, first is the, the sort of nautical word picture, uh, which is what the ESV translators picked up on. It's the idea of that boat drifting like we already talked about. It's a, a sailor trying to navigate his ship and through neglect of either the stars or his map or his compass, he's, he's veering off course. And as you know, the more you veer off course, the harder it is to get back on course, and so uh, it's another, another word picture is nautically speaking. It's like, have you ever tried to throw a, a, a an anchor out of a boat when you're, you're on, on one? And you've got to make the anchor grab the bottom of the lake or the body of water that you're in. Because if you don't, and it's hard to do this because the rocks are slimy and you're, maybe it's just sand down there, you'll just keep on floating when you want to stay still. And so that's another drifting away is you, you've disconnected your anchor from the seabed. And now you're just drifting, and so you're in danger of running into a reef or rocks or getting lost at sea. And so there's this imminent danger. You're you're drifting away. You're drifting away from the gospel through negligence of God's word and meditating on what you've heard. You're, You're drifting towards apostasy, towards rejecting Christ and his gospel and never returning again. So don't drift away. Another way this can be translated is slip away like a ring. That's the the word picture here. You you put a ring on your finger because you want to keep it, right? If you didn't want to keep it, you just pull it off, throw it away, sell it, give it away. Um, but you want to keep that ring on your finger because it's valuable to you. And so they they wanted to hold on to this gospel, seemingly, that they first professed, that they first received. They don't want to let it slip off their finger like a ring. Still remember... I didn't get to confirm all of this with Kristen, the exact timeline, so I'm ready to get corrected after the sermon. But um, when we were first married, first couple months, we uh, went with my family to the beach. And I, I think I was pretty uh, used to having the ring on my finger, the wedding ring by this point. But I was out there in the water boogie boarding. And uh, the water was cold, and my fingers were shriveled, and the ring size was about half a size too big. You know where this is going. A wave came. I grabbed the front of the boogie board and bloop! off went the ring. I bailed off the boogie board, tried to get it as quickly as I could. But of course, the Pacific Ocean had claimed my wedding ring. Uh, it wasn't expensive. It was like 40 bucks, but it's the sentimental value of the thing. I didn't want to lose it. I still remember my mom actually standing at the, sh- the shore just looking so sullen, hoping that it would somehow wash up, uh, which of course it never did. Told her she was wasting her time, but I appreciated the uh, the effort. The point is what? You don't want to lose that ring. You don't want it to slip off. And they're in danger of losing this precious, glorious gospel. Like a ring one loses off of their finger. The last word picture uh, that this, this Greek uh, verb can translate is to flow by or flow out of. Quite simply, that's the word picture of a liquid that you have that you want to contain, right? So you put it in a container, and yet what's wrong with it? It has holes in it, or there's a crack in it. And so this liquid that you want to keep, it just keeps dripping out. It just, it just keeps leaking. And that's what he's saying. You are like a leaky vessel, The gospel's been poured into you. These glorious truths have been poured into you and you just keep leaking it out. And so you gotta stop those holes up before you end up just being empty and dry altogether. And so what's the warning? It's fear, isn't it? It, The motivation is fear. I know we don't like that. Whoa, wait a minute, fear? I thought the gospel was just promises and love and grace. Well, love and grace takes interesting forms. When your heavenly father knows how stubborn you are. And one of those motives that he uses to preserve you, to sanctify you, to keep you, is fear. So what's the fear? The fear is that you're going to lose something that you love. That you're going to drift away from the gospel. That you're going to lose that precious ring. That you're just going to leak out the truths of the son. You're going to leak out the gospel. And so this is supposed to induce fear in you. It's supposed to induce fear in me. It was supposed to induce fear in the original hearers. Now... If you're tracking with me, here's the question you're probably asking yourself. I hope you're asking yourself this question anyway. Wait a minute, Jason. Are you saying that someone can lose their salvation? Are you saying that someone who is truly indwelt, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, united to Christ... Chosen by God graciously in eternity past, can lose their salvation and drift away in this manner. Can apostatize, turn away from the gospel they've heard and at one point professed faith in, and then walk away and never return back. Is that what I'm saying? No. No. Hear me loud and clear, no, that is not what I'm saying. If you would like to know, I don't have time to get into it this morning. Um, If you would like to know the church's official position on that, what the elders here, myself included, uh, hold to and believe about this, you can look up the Second London Baptist Confession and look at chapter 17. Three paragraphs there, absolutely beautiful theology, beautiful pastoral application of it. And so if you're curious what we think, what I believe, go, go look there. But I do want to cite two scriptures for you um, in defense of the fact that those whom the Father has given to the Son will persevere to the end. They will persevere to the end. They may even turn away for a season. They may look from our perspective like a true believer apostatizes, turns away, and then eventually comes back. But I'm talking about a specific sin. The author of the book of Hebrews is warning against a very specific sin apostasy. Turning away from Christ, having once professed faith, been in the congregation of the saints, and then walking away and never coming back. Right? I've known people that have walked away and I thought they've apostatized. Terribly sad. And yet, by God's grace, they turned back around. Why? Because they were truly believers and the Spirit moved in them to come back. So they actually hadn't apostatized, even though it looked that way from my perspective. So, what does Jesus say? He says, uh, John 10, sorry, John 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus is picking up language from the Old Testament uh, about a shepherd who will come and care for the sheep, reference to Ezekiel. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. Jesus is picking up this language and saying, I'm the good shepherd that the Father promised. I'm the one who's come and has laid down his life for the sheep. The sheep were going astray, and they were worthy of the Father's wrath. But because the Father loves them and because I love them, I've come, I've paid the Father's wrath in full for them. They've been counted righteous as I am righteous, and they're mine. The Father's given them to me. I won't let them go, and neither will the Father. Here's what he says in verse 27 of John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know who my sheep are. We don't always know who God's, Jesus' sheep are, do we? We don't always know, but he does and they follow him. They follow his voice. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who can snatch Christ's sheep whom he shed his blood for out of his hand, nobody. Why? Because he is sovereign. He is all-powerful. No one is mightier than him. Not even you. Shocker, right? Not even you can pull yourself out of his hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So those who are truly given to Christ by the Father, they will persevere. They will endure. They will never fully and finally apostatize and fall away. Uh, similar idea again from John. If you look at First John chapter two, and I'm just going to read verse nineteen. So if you're like, I don't want to turn there, that's fine. First John chapter two, verse nineteen. John says, they went out from us. He's talking about the Antichrist who have abandoned the church, abandoned their profession of, of faith in the gospel. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They went out from our number, from the church, but they were never truly a part of the body of Christ. How do we know that? For if they had been a part of the body of Christ, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. How do you know whether or not someone is a sheep? They will persevere. They will endure. Even if for a season they turn away, they will come back because God is keeping them. And he will not lose any of the sheep that the Father has given to him. So clear enough? Um, Here's the next question that you should be asking yourself. All right, I buy it. No one whom the Father has given to the Son will be lost. So then why the warning? Why is this even here? If if it's not a possibility, then then why even warn them? Well, again, it is a possibility from our vantage point, isn't it? We see, I'm terrified for some of you folks when I see you start to drift and not come to corporate worship and and not attend to the means of grace. I'm terrified when I see that in myself. And so, what's the point? The Lord uses means to keep us and to preserve us, doesn't he? I hope that's why you're here this morning. He keeps you through the means of grace, through the word as it's preached, through prayer, through fellowship, through the ordinances, the Lord's Supper. As we participate in these, he lavishes grace upon grace on us in his spirit. And He uses those things to keep us. And here's the thing. One of the the aspects of God's Word that He uses to keep you is threatenings and warnings before which you and I tremble and repent. It doesn't uh, push us away from the Father. By the Holy Spirit's power, it draws us closer to Him. And yet for those who are not believers, do they heed the warning? No. They go out from us because they were never truly of us and they apostatize. And their punishment is great. So what's the first motivation? The first motivation is fear of losing something that they're saying that they value. The gospel, the glories of the Son that they have heard and received. What's the second motivation? (laughs) If you had troubles with the last one, you're really going to struggle with this one. The second motivation is in verse 2. Look at verse 2. For since the message declared by angels... Proved to be reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Let's bleed over to verse 3 a little bit. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the first motivation is fear of losing something that you don't want. The second motivation is getting something, incurring something that you don't want. What? Punishment. Punishment. Under the wrath of God, for any infraction of the law of God. Now, how do we know what this is? It's the old covenant. It's the Mosaic law. That is the, look at verse 2, message declared by angels. Now, you're saying message declared by angels. I didn't see any angels in Exodus 19 through 24. The message was declared by angels? Yes. Look at these later. Acts 7, 38. And 53, Acts 7, 38 and 53, Stephen before the Sanhedrin says in no uncertain terms that the law was mediated through angels to Moses and then to the people. You say, well, what did that look like? John Owen, I think, rightly speculates. Um, He says that, remember how the mountains shook and there was smoke and there was fire and there were trumpets blaring and there were voices that were being heard? I think he rightly speculates that's the angels. They're mediating That that message, that covenant that originates from God through the angels to Moses to the people. And it was reliable. Why was it reliable? Because the source is reliable. God Himself is trustworthy and true. And how did we know that it was reliable? Because any infraction of it was punished. It was punished. And so here's what I want us to do. When the the Hebrews, the original audience heard this, these Hebrew Christians, their minds would fill upon hearing that of examples from the Old Testament of what this looked like. Um, Hopefully you have some that are filling your mind right now. Um, And we don't have have time to, to read through each and every one of them. But I do want to look at specific examples of where God's wrath breaks out on covenant people for their infractions of his law. Any transgression, any disobedience received just retribution. Now, you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're in the new covenant. Why are you going to take us back to old covenant examples? Great question. The Apostle Paul, in at least two places, probably more, I can think of more places, but I think these are the only two from Paul. Anyway, he tells us that these, these situations, this history that we have recorded in the old covenant, is recorded for us for our instruction, for our our fear and trembling, and for our encouragement. So let me show you uh, both of these real quick where Paul says this. Romans 15.4, you don't have to turn there, you can write it down if you want and look at it later, but Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in former days. Now remember, they don't have the, the New Testament yet. What was written in former days? The Old Testament, the Old Covenant what was written then was for our instruction. There are people nowadays who say, oh, we can abandon the Old Testament. We don't have to focus on that. That God is mean and angry, always breaking out in wrath. Let's just focus on the God of the New Testament. That's all we need. Folks, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. We cannot avoid the Old Testament. Paul says says it right here. There are other places that he says this as well. Why? So that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, Romans 15, 4, we might have hope. They're for our instruction. Second of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 12, he says, now these things took place as examples for us. Read a Greek scholar that said that word can be translated types. Interesting language choice, but they translated it examples here. They're examples for us. Why? To what end? That we might not desire evil as they did. We're supposed to look at these and tremble with how God dealt with them when they desired evil and turn away from evil ourselves, hating it even as God hates it goes on to say, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Anybody know where that's from? Exodus 32, golden calf. We're going to briefly go over that story in a second. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a reference back to Numbers 25. When the Israelite people worshipped Baal at Peor, and God had a plague break out, and 24,000 of them fell and died. Now, notice this we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Interesting. Who were they testing under the Old Covenant? Yahweh, yes, but Christ, the Messiah nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. It happened in the congregation of Israel so that those who were alive might see and learn from the example, but they were written down for our instruction. They're recorded in the word that we might know them, study them, be encouraged, be frightened, be corrected, be rebuked, and turn to the Lord in repentance. They're written down for our instruction. And who are we? We are those on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Clear enough? See why we're going back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament? Okay, let's look at a few of these examples. Again, these are examples of how any infraction of the Old Covenant brought about, any disobedience, any transgression, this is what the author of Hebrews says, brought about just retribution. First example, you can write these down and look at them later if you want. Exodus 32. Just referenced this earlier in First Corinthians um, 10 there. Uh, God is giving the old covenant through the angels to Moses to give to the people, and he's coming down, hasn't even come down the mountain yet with the tablets, and they hear this noise. This carousing. The people are are carousing. They gathered all the jewelry. They threw it into the fire, says Aaron, and out popped this idol. Talk about blame shifting. I think a little bit more went into making that idol than that. And now they're worshiping it. And Moses comes down, and he's pretty upset, right? He's just been up on Mount Sinai with the, the Shekinah glory of God. And so the Lord comes to Moses. And Moses draws a line in the sand and says, Everybody who's for the Lord, come over here. Who comes over the line? The tribe of Levi. And the Lord tells Moses. Moses doesn't come up with this himself. The Lord tells Moses, tell the men of Levi to put a sword on either one of their sides and just run through the camp of people. Cutting down 3,000 men for their sin. Why? They drifted. They despised. They turned away from God's word, his law, his revelation, his command. Breaking the second commandment, right? No, don't worship me with graven images. They could even say, no, we were worshiping you, but just with this golden calf. No, I said no to that. Absolutely not. And so they received this retribution that was just. Why is the retribution just? Because God himself is just and holy and righteous. These actions are flowing out of his character. Another example that you're probably aware of, Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 4. Nadab and Abihu... Aaron's sons, called to be priests, called to offer certain types of fire to God in the tabernacle to worship. And they decide, you know what? We're going to worship God this way with this weird, unauthorized fire. They go in, and and what does the Lord say? He says, hey, I know you guys love me, and you're just trying to worship me, however, so I'll I'll just receive this. Nope. Fire comes forth from the tabernacle and consumes them. And the Lord tells Moses, tell Aaron to zip his lid. He can't can't mourn the, the death of his sons because they violated my law. And so Aaron is silent. What's the point? Any infraction of God's law, punishment, death. Another example, Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36. Numbers 15, 32 through 36. The people of Israel are in the wilderness. For they're complaining and grumbling against the Lord. And they're given the command. They're given sanctions for how to observe the Sabbath. And there's a guy out picking up sticks. Uh-oh. So he gets taken into, uh, into custody so that Moses can say, Lord, what are we supposed to do with this guy? And the Lord comes and says, it's no big deal. It's just sticks. He probably needed them. Nope. Think about this. The Lord says, Moses... Take him in front of the people, and you all stone him. That is a horrific way to have to end somebody's life. It's a horrific way to have your own life ended. You're, it's just, ter- just use your imagination, and you can think of why it's terrible. What's the point? This is just retribution for disregarding, disobeying, transgressing God's law. We think, oh, that's not fair. It's absolutely fair. It'd be fair for the whole earth to split and all of Israel to go straight to the depths of hell. It'd be perfectly just for the Lord to do that to us this morning in and of ourselves. Last example that I want to give you is from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 7. The ark is being brought back into Jerusalem. David's really excited about it. Israel's really excited about it. And so they've got the the ark being transported in a way that the Lord did not prescribe. They've got it on a cart, apparently, being pulled by some oxen. One of the oxen slips and falls. The Ark of the Covenant starts to go. And Uzzah, awesome guy that he is, puts his hand out and tries to support it. And the Lord says, thanks, Uzzah, for lending me a hand. Because the Lord makes cheesy jokes. No. What does the Lord say? He doesn't actually say anything. Uzzah dies where he stands. Why? I thought he was helping the Lord out. Nope. He who is unclean, Uzzah, is touching that which is clean. He who is unholy is trying to help the one who is holy. And the one who is holy has said, absolutely not. Put those acacia poles through the Ark of the Covenant and transport it that way. It's the same point, by the way, that the author makes again later in the book of Hebrews, which maybe we'll get to in two or three years, Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 28, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Are, Are you guys getting the point? The point is any infraction of the Old Testament law, boom, death, just retribution. Now remember, that's the lesser, this is the lesser side of the argument. And what's his point? If that was true under the old covenant, how much more true is it under the new covenant? That was mediated by Moses and angels. This is mediated by the glorious Son, the only begotten of the Father. His best and final word. If if punishment's going to happen for these infractions under the old covenant, just wiped out, how much greater if you despise and reject This gospel, the glories of the Son. How much greater is your punishment going to be if you abandon that? Remember, it's a specific sin. It's apostasy. It's turning away from Christ, denying your belief in Him, and walking away and never coming back. How much greater will that punishment be? It will be terrifyingly great. And there's no way that we can escape if we've been given such a great salvation. So how does this apply to us? Well, first of all, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I hope that you are shaking in your boots. Especially as you're hearing the gospel, and if you're, you're going to turn away from it, um, there, there is no refuge for you to find anywhere outside of Christ. That's the whole point of the apostasy. You're, you're going to receive the wrath that you would have anyway apart from Christ, but now your culpability is greater because you've professed it, you've heard it, and then you've completely and fully and finally walked away from it, which just shows you were never united to Christ in the first place. But that wrath of God is even greater now because you've heard the gospel and you've rejected it. So I encourage you to repent. And to flee to Christ because you are just storing up in the meantime the wrath of God which will break forth on you at the end of all things when you have to stand before his judgment throne. What about for believers? First of all, I want to remind you again, this is a warning against a specific sin. Uh, of course this is the case. We, we know our God is a God of wrath. And so if we put ourselves outside of Christ by apostatizing, thus proving we were never in Christ, then we know that this wrath is going to be ours. And it's going to be even greater again because we've heard it and we've walked away from it. But for those of you who are united to Christ, who are persevering, who are enduring, you see that in your life, you understand that's not something that you Create in yourself. That's a gracious working of God by the Holy Spirit because you're united to Christ. And so he's going to cause you to persevere. Yes, you're going to tremble before this passage as I have all throughout the week trembled before this passage. But it's going to serve to draw you closer. It may push you away for a season as you're running away from the Lord much as as Jonah did but he will work in your heart and bring you back. So, and the longer you prolong that, the more pain you're just going to be heaping on yourself. If nothing else, the grief that you will experience once you have returned. Asking yourself, why? Why did I allow myself to drift, to let the ring slow? Why did I, for so long, thank God he's brought me back, be humbled by that. But we should be Paying close attention and and keeping a check on our heart, our affections. Are we in the means of grace? Are we coming to corporate worship? That's more important than anything else. Are we stirring one another up to love and good deeds? Not forsaking the assembly of the saints. And here's what I want you to see your, your Heavenly Father doing in this text by the Holy Spirit. He's warning you, drawing you to himself. He loves you. If he didn't love you, he had no concern for you. He wouldn't warn you. So repent. Repent today. Don't wait. And pay much closer attention to what you've heard about the glories of the Son and thank Him for the refuge that you have in Him. There is no purification of sins out of any outside of Christ. Only this one who is Son who took on flesh could reconcile us to Father and He will keep us, brothers and sisters. He will hold us fast. And how is he doing that this morning? Through this terrifying, threatening warning passage. Run to him, cling to him and say, thank you for keeping me. Continue to do so in accord with your promise and in accord with your word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know that the one upon whom you look is the one who is indwelt by your Spirit and trembles at your word. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and apply it to the hearts and lives of your people this morning. Move them to fear, not so that they run from you, but are drawn to you. Understanding what this truth teaches is not that we somehow work for our justification or even keep ourselves for our justification, but because we are justified and united to Christ, you will keep us and we will persevere to the end. Oh, how we rejoice in that promise. May we tremble as we read this passage, fly to you. And I pray that if there's any unbelievers here this morning, that they would be terrified by the wrath of God And find refuge in you, Lord Christ. Only you can do this by your spirit. So do that work. May that which is unhelpful in the sermon be forgotten. And may you apply your word rightly to your people. That we might be drawn in greater love and adoration and proclamation of your good news. For you are a good and wise heavenly father. Who knows exactly how to discipline and parent your wayward children who need it so desperately. We love you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.